Today's episode of Socially Democratic is presented to you by Dunn Street. Dunn Street is a progressive campaign agency that specializes in community organizing. We work with nonprofit and community-based organizations, trade unions, businesses, and social democratic parties across the globe to develop campaign strategies, train engagement staff in leadership and power building, and help you execute your campaign with data-driven tactics and actions. And in 2022, Dunn Street will continue to work with folks that want to share their stories and inspire others, take action and organize communities for change. To find out how you can partner with Dunn Street, hit us up at dunnstreet.com.au. Today's episode is also proudly brought to you by Morris Blackburn Lawyers. Are you highly organized and love working in a fast-paced environment? Morris Blackburn, Australia's leading plaintiff law firm, is looking for an executive legal assistant to support the national leader on a 12-month fixed-term contract based in Melbourne. This will include coordinating and supporting the leader with a high-level administrative assistance, coordinating documents with strong attention to detail, building and managing relationships with key internal and external stakeholders, and obviously and obviously providing excellent client service. To apply for this wonderful job, simply go to morrisblackburn.com.au forward slash careers. Hello and welcome to another episode of Socially Democratic, your weekly center-left politics and organizing podcast out every Friday that dives into the progressive campaign and issues of the day and the people leading from, from home and abroad. And we continue on our journey of unpacking the 2021 federal election in which Anthony Albanese and the Labor Party were elected to government for the first time since 2010. And we're going to look at New South Wales on today's episode, the premier state, as we like to be told by our cousins north of the border. And to help me unpack the results in New South Wales, we're joined by Elliot Stein from Hawker Britain. Now, I will just say this, at the time of recording, uh, Elliot worked for Hawker Britain. Elliot has now been uh, uh, snapped up into the um, into the federal government's um, ministry team. He's um, been hired as a staff member um, for one of the ministers. So just to be clear, uh, this recording was done whilst he was working for a, uh, a, a private firm. Uh, and obviously uh, his views here do not reflect those of his boss or the ministry. Uh, and he's not doing a podcast whilst he's on the payroll of the government. Um, and we just need to just say that. And if this was a Liberal Party podcast, they wouldn't bother doing that. And in fact, they'd probably throw him out, you know, a backhander as well, some money, some cash on the side. That's how the way the Liberals do it. But they can get away with that kind of stuff. We can't. We have to be better than that. So um, so that's today's episode. Looking forward to hearing from uh, Elliot on that. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. And if you like the show, give us five stars on whatever podcast app you use. And for all the updates, follow Dunn Street on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Okay, let's get to today's episode. We are taping this one on a Wednesday morning on the lands of the Wurundjeri people and to help me break down the New South Wales post-election debrief, I'm joined once again on the line from Thurl. I hope I pronounced that correctly. It's a town north of Wollongong. That's all people need to know. He's the director for the Queensland and Northern Territory practice of Hawker Britain. Elliot Stein, welcome back to Socially Democratic. G'day, Stephen. Good to see you again. Um, I haven't seen you since uh, election night with our live telecast and uh, David Fetty tried to beat you up about getting an answer out of you about Fowler. Um, I can't leave off the hook now because I've got you for an hour, so we're going to get to that eventually. But how have you recovered from election night and the victory? Uh, uh, very, very well. Um, thanks again for having us on um, on that live uh, broadcast, which I think on your current uh, projections had about 2 million listeners or, and viewers, I think, over the course of the episode is the latest. And going up! <laughs> um, it's good. And, um, you know, looking forward to... Um, I think you and I joked the day after the election that this podcast would be calling um, the things I wouldn't say to David on air that I'm ready to say two weeks later. Uh, so looking forward to the chat. Wonderful. Same. So uh, for the viewers at home, uh, and I say that jokingly because this is a um, purely audio um, uh, medium, just give us a, a, a snapshot of New South Wales. Um, the two-party preferred at this point in time is uh, 51.1 to Labor, 48.9 to the Coalition that is a 2.9% swing to the Labor Party. So a good swing uh, for the party up in New South Wales. Um, if we take a look at the primary vote totals uh, and the seats won and lost, 
starting with the coalition, they had a terrible night. They lost six seats. Um, they currently hold 16. Their primary vote was 36.7, and that is a swing of 5.8% against their primary. The Labor Party um, picked up two seats. We'll talk about them in a moment. So they take their total in the caucus to 26 with a primary vote of 33.4 and a swing against Labor's primary of 1.2. Uh, the Greens still don't have a seat in New South Wales. Um, they got 9.9%. They had a swing of 1.2% to them. One Nation had a swing of 3.5% to them. And they're on 4.8%. United Palmer, a swing of 05 and others which is the big story, I guess, outside of Labor winning government is um, all of the teals. They had a swing of 1.8%, uh, which takes their primary up to 11, which is actually bigger than the Greens, and they picked up four seats. Broadly speaking, Elliot, just your you know your your top line uh, reflections on on the on the two PP and then the primary um, results coming out of New South Wales. Yeah, so it was a um, it was a tremendous result in New South Wales and. Um, uh, it's a state that will and truly um, carried its own and and helped deliver uh, majority government. We should say that it was, um, although it was a net gain of two, it was obviously three seats that we um, we picked up, and we'll we'll dive into that. Um, the story of our two um, PP and our primary is sort of reflective of um, of the country where we uh, we did take a hit on on primary, but we saw it come back to us quite healthily in a swing towards on on 2PP. Um, we said uh, when we spoke um, before the election, I think I said that New South Wales was the best um, encapsulation of what Morrison was trying to do, of jettisoning um, one set of seats to gain another set of seats. And um, uh, hopefully I said this, but I was definitely thinking it of going, the, the there was a, that's a high risk strategy and it could be the greatest, you know, um, demonstration of that strategy falling short of jumping from one lily pad to the other, but landing in the drink instead. And that's what exactly what happened. Um, uh, you saw quite deliberate um, abandonment of um, the seats around the Sydney heads, uh, with an attempt to go after the seats, um, uh, you know, out along the Parramatta River and and west. And it completely completely fell short to the point where. Um, you know, I like to. I, I particularly enjoy this this outcome of the election. Uh, there is only one part of New South Wales where you can stand on the beach and be standing in um, a Liberal seat, and that's uh, Cook Scott Morrison's seat, Cronulla. Uh, there is only one part. There is only one beachfront uh, Liberal held seat in New South Wales now, uh, and that's the seat of Cook, which I'm sure uh, will be uh, will be handing out at a by election in the not too distant future. Um, there as well, so it's um, uh, we'll, we'll dive into it a bit more. But with the um, uh, obviously the the teal or um, independent movement did uh, extremely well uh, against the liberals um, uh, in and actually exceeded expectations with the gain of McKellar uh, as well, which was one that we didn't even speak about um, last uh, last time. Uh, obviously, we had the um, unexpected upset in Fowler, but I do think there is a there is a common thread with those uh, with those elections, which we'll, we'll we'll dive into a little bit later on. Um, but across the board, um, uh, it was a tremendous Labor result um, uh, for um, for New South Wales. Before we talk about the positives from the Labor side, let's actually talk about the negatives for the Little Party. I just want to pick up on uh, that point you just said before about the strategy for Morrison to jump from one lily pad to another and fall in the pond. Um, how much do you think that um, the the politics of the pandemic played into voters' minds and how much of it was um, a vote against the Morrison doctrine or how much did New South Wales state politics also play into the results, yes. Yeah, so I'll um, sort of working around those ones. Um, I, I um, although there, there might be some implications for the coming state election in March, I don't think state politics fed into um, into the campaign um, as much as uh, maybe some of the commentary says it may have played in Victoria. I think by virtue of um, length of lockdowns and and different perceptions of the role of the role of government in 
um, in the, the southern state compared to the premier state. Um, uh, so not not as much on the state thing. I think the like the interesting I was chatting with a mate last night about about you know the the COVID implications and you know part of me just thinks that um, people were so tired after COVID and um, to be you know brutally honest they just were also they just couldn't stand any more of Morrison's bullshit. Like people were just tired and then. They saw him kicking around, washing people's hair, crash tackling kids, doing the whole routine. And so really it was a, I don't think it was a COVID election. I think it was a COVID hangover election where people were just tired of it all. Uh, and I saw a fantastic quote from um, from Paul Erickson, the state secretary, in the, um, in the cover story of the monthly um, this month. Um, and I think it is a quote was basically along the lines of the proposition was um, when it came to the crunch in the ballot box, do you want three more years of this shit? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and we've probably just got ourselves an R rating now in the first five minutes, but anyway, <laughs> <laughs> it might happen a bit more, but um, so, uh, yeah, so that's, a, I, I think weirdly enough, and, it, you know, compare and contrast to um, the Queensland state election, the ter- the Northern Territory election, and the WA state election, which have all occurred, um, uh, and you know, and the New Zealand election as well, which occurred more in the um, in the heat of COVID, and they were definitely definitive COVID elections. Um, this one, I think, is sort of that long tail effect, and um, partly because the way that he conducted himself um, during the pandemic as well, Morrison couldn't really play off any positives or strengths from that. Um, and and really didn't try to. Um, it was amazing how much COVID wasn't mentioned, but I reckon that emotional tiredness is the only word I can think to describe it. Um, that that's what I sort of sense lurking around that people just wanted to go back to having good, competent government. It's funny when you think about it now, because take you go just as you started to talk about being in the heat of that COVID period. At that time, I think a lot of us were thinking. Oh, there, if there was an election called now, there a federal election that is, there's no way Labor's going to win an election. Um, and we were all kind of watching how Morrison was handling it because we could see that most other state premiers were doing a very good job and their numbers were, their approval numbers were high. And Morrison's were reasonably high as well. Um, I'm just trying to think of the moment when things started to, to turn. I'm, I'm guessing it's kind of the vaccine rollout, really. That's when I think people sort of... And I know, like Labor people were getting a little bit frustrated with Elbow because he was quite, he was very quiet, um, and, and unlike say Peter Malinowskis, who clearly took the the strategy of I'm going to be I'm going to be a team player for Team South Australia, and I'm going to support the government, like openly support the government where I can. But when there are moments I want to sort of call them out, or I've got some suggestions, I'm going to put them forward. Whereas Elbow was, just, I thought. I thought Labor were reasonably quiet through that, that period. And then the vaccine rollout ha- happened. Is that when you think things started to turn? I, I, I think it was two moments. And I, I, for the life of me, I can't, can't put in my head the um, the order of the two of them. Um, but just really back on on uh, on the federal Labor team, I reckon um, that uh, the federal caucus's predisposition uh, would have been the same as as Mally's, which would would have been to be, um, you know, to be supportive, to be Team Australia, to get behind it. But uh, it got to a certain point where we just couldn't um, any further. And um, I think because we had banked the capital of being responsible and wanting to wanting the best and wanting to get through it all, um, when we did inevitably have to start throwing some punches, um, it probably had a bit more more weight behind it, almost more in sorrow than in anger. Um, so the two moments that I would think about it, the vaccine rollout, um, absolutely. Um, but that moment, um, and he and Frydenberg did it to Victoria to some extent as well. But the moment where he called WA cave people, um, I reckon that um, that was a big turning point as well. And it sort of comes back to what we're saying about Morrison's performance during COVID. Is he was never quite comfortable in the skin that he had to wear through that moment, like he didn't quite like the fact that government was going to be quite central to the response um and although you know those early months he probably played 
played a played a blinder of um, committee national cabinet and and leading those initial responses and some of those um, you know early performances. You know, um, speaking candidly from my own point of view, the best thing that Morrison ever did was when he um, uh, it was the second or third week of of March and he said to um, expats living overseas, if you want to come home, come home now. Um, and um, that's actually what prompted me to come home. Um, like it was good, clear messaging. It clearly indicated where the government was going. It it had enough anticipation where you could sort of factor it in. And I was being open and honest about the thought process and the thinking of government, which I think is one of the, this is a tangent, I'll go down quickly, but um, like one of the biggest lessons I've learned over the different years and different sort of crisis portfolios is that there's nothing wrong with taking the public into your confidence uh, when you don't know all the answers. And I thought he did that really well in like March 2020 and April 2020. It was quite good. But the longer that it went on, he clearly didn't like that about the job. And uh, that's where you saw pushing everything, you know, pushing everything onto the states, um, not providing any federal leadership, then you'd end up with a situation of having this mismatch of different rules in each jurisdiction, which he would then come out and attack the states for not having consistency when he wasn't providing a leadership role um, and was quite happy to, you know, have all this bickering, which just frankly strengthened all the incumbent state leaders in their own jurisdictions. Thanks very much. Um, so I think the longer it went on, the more he was trying to sort of wrestle with what he had um had to had to adopt and then that's when you saw things like um uh uh you know taking pot shots at wa um you had you know Frydenberger's treasurer um uh attacking the the victorian government and your sixth lockdown or whichever one it was apologies um so i i, I think that and then on top of it then um uh, then you got to the vaccine rollout um and i i um somewhere around the sort of that middle of the second Sydney lockdown and when the vaccine rollout was just, you know, um, a dog's breakfast, um, uh, my mum said something to me and she go, she said, um, uh, we spent two years at home for what? It's like, what was the point of all that? And like the death count was going up, the vaccine rollout was a mess. Um, we'd all stayed home for two years to give them uh, to give the federal government time to get their act together, and they dropped it. And I just remember her distinctly saying, "Just going, what was the point of all of that?" And I reckon that sums up the mood around that around that time really, really well. Um, and I reckon people got to the end of it and said, "Well, we'll fix you." Mm. Well, let's talk about how they did fix him. Let's start with the positives that came out of uh, the campaign for Labor, um, and I want to talk about the seats that we uh that we picked up what do you the starting with um more broadly speaking before we dive into reed and, and ben along what do you think is the foundations of success of success for labor that enable them to take those two particular seats what are the characteristics that you when you look at those seats you go okay this is where labor managed to um have some success uh, and and robertson as well uh, and i think it's and robertson as well um and, and i think it's the same story across um across all three actually and i was digging through them before trying to find, you know, what particular booth or location or, or what sort of individual metric. It, it's actually a very uniform result across those those three. Um, and it's the story of um, the collapse of the Liberal primary for all the reasons why we just went through um, and and the success of Labor in um, holding or increasing our, our primary slightly but gaining heavily on 2PP. Um, for me, th- those three seats have the one thing in common, which is um, excellent candidate selection. Um, and we had candidates um, from and of their communities, um, representative of their communities, um, from um, uh, you know Sally, Jerome, and Gordon are all um, uh, exceptional, exceptional candidates with great stories, um, and and worked their and, and worked their behinds off, um, but were representative of their communities, whether they whether they'd come out of um, uh, you know local government or or um, or the um, health system uh, or from, you know, uh, raising families and that sort of stuff. Um, like it, it just came down to we made some really good calls um, on on candidate picks in those areas uh, and then overlaid with the collapse of the Liberal primaries. That's really the common thread of, of those three seats. Looking at 
I, I, I wanted to talk about, we, you and I spoke about this before the show. I actually want to bring it up now because I'm, I'm looking at the way that the, the primary, there's a, obviously a lot of conversation at the moment within labor circles on social media and, and in, um, in the, uh, the columns of um, or the newspapers about labor's uh, strength in, uh, in our base. And we've seen, well, certainly if you look in Victoria, if you look at metropolitan Melbourne, there are swings against Labor on our primary in our heartland, not just in the west and the north, but also in the southeast, to um, radical far-right, mostly radical far-right um, fringe nut job parties like Palmer and One Nation, a little bit to the Greens as well, but substantially to those parties. You move in towards the CBD, to our held seats that are in the in a sort of um, ring, same deal. Swings against us on our primary, but to um, the Greens or to left leaning parties. I think the Socialists might have picked up some swings to one of the seats uh, in Wills or something. The only weird one actually is um, is McEwen, and that was the one we were worried about. And actually, there were swings to the Greens more than the than than um, into the sort of the right wing nut jobs. Now, what's the story in New South Wales? Because there's something I've just noticed um, about the difference in the, the only difference in Victoria. The only time we saw swings to Labor are the seats that had a field campaign. So Dunkley and and um, so in terms of Labor held Dunkley and uh, Karangamite and the seats we picked up. And if you look at the primary vote in New South Wales, in the seats that you picked up, same deal had swings on our primary. Sally got a swing of. Um, four point four percent to her. That was the biggest swing t- of any of the candidates on primary. Uh, in Benelong, Jerome got a swing of three point seven percent to him. Once again, the biggest of all the swings. Um, what are you seeing broadly about what's happening in this current seats that we hold, where we're seeing small swings against us on our primary, but then it comes back in spades yeah. in our two PP. Um, but what's the difference in those particular seats of Benelong? Reid and uh, Robertson? Uh, I, I think um, in, well, I, I think the big difference in those seats is, um, which is a bit sort of, bit obvious, but um, because they were um, seats that were hunting against the Liberals in, um, uh, voters in those areas knew that if they wanted to, if they wanted to turf them, they had to come over the fence. Uh, so, and on top of great campaigns run, great candidate selection as well, um, but I think like the reason you'd see those in the un, you know in the in the labor gain seats and swings towards us on our on our primary is because um, people were determined to to change the election. Now we, if you look if you look at the collapse of the liberal primary in those seats, it didn't come across holus bolus to us. It did fracture and splinter and then come back on to BP, but we got a slice of it on the way through. Um, and the biggest and, slice and, and, and the biggest like yeah the biggest slice on the way through and those sort of you know threes and fours um uh coming off the you know like the 10 point collapse from the from the liberal party so i think part of that is just the benefit of people wanting to turf um turf out um the incumbent and knowing to do that they had to um uh, go to to the other major party uh to do so i think that's that's, that's all i'd say in, in terms of the the, the bigger broader question and we we're sort of saying this um beforehand as well it's the um uh, i've i've never seen the degree of introspection after a victory um that we're going through now and i reckon that's a good thing uh, i think that's a good thing and i think it's um it's good for us to be um not just sitting back on our heels and going you know we're absolute geniuses you know mm. we turned a we turned a, a low 30s primary nation, uh, nationwide into a majority government you know, we must be master strategists. Like there's a there's a there's a good and healthy degree of looking under the hood of this result um, from you know different commentators and also within the within the show as well. I, I, I don't know what it all means just yet. Um, I don't have a firm view about what it all means. There's um, you know you can see a scenario where um, this is the splintering of the of the two party of the two party system. Um, there's a scenario you can see where this is the last uh, last majority government of any persuasion for the next um, you know you know two decades or so. Um, you know I've um, 
been saying to people, like, there's a reason the free traders and the protectionist merged in 1909 and formed the Commonwealth Liberals, and it's because it was a three-horse race um, of, of us, the free traders and the protectionist, and no one could quite work out how to get there in their own right. Um, and two, two legs of that stool decided that they wanted to lock out Labor, and so they merged together in the fusion court and created the um, Commonwealth Liberals um, and the country party bumbled its way along at some stage as well. Um, so there's a possibility we're sitting in a similar sort of sort of moment. I've seen some commentators refer to it as akin to the creation of the Democrats. I think it's bigger than that. Um, uh, you know, some people have spoken about um, the different uh, the the different ALP split, uh, the, the the two splits. It's probably more. It it feels more akin to that, though on the on the non-labor side of the side of the fence. So I think there's a big question that um, is sort of sitting in front of all of us, which is um, what is the um, what is the future constituency of a majority government look like? And I don't think anyone has the has the perfect answer for that. Um, and part of it is as much about um, form and style um, as it is about um, different policy attributes as well. I think there'll be a big debate, obviously, um, about uh, climate and um, both uh rhetoric and, and and policy settings on on climate over the course of this term um uh, I think that'll be that'll be a big part of the that'll be a big part of the conversation but I think an even bigger part of the conversation is running um good competent um sensible government mm. um something that's been missing and and you know stable government which has been missing um you know Scott Morrison was um the first uh, the first prime minister to go to re-election, having been elected at the previous election since 2007. Uh, you know, there's been a huge period of instability in our national politics, uh, on top of a <laughs> a global pandemic. Um, uh, so that I think there is a, you know, there is. I'm rambling a little bit because I don't know all the answers, and I don't think anyone knows all the answers just yet. But there's a big part of it which is. Uh, running good, competent government for a period of three years, when we're going to be facing economic conditions which are, um, you know, um, horrendous and very, very challenging. But running good, stable, trusted, respected government with with some integrity un- underpinning it as well has got to be part of the answer. I think that there's two things I've taken from, and I'm with you. I don't know. I, 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 my thoughts on this aren't fully formed, and apart of the reason why I'm doing this podcast is I want to sit down with folks like yourself and have a bit of a chat about it um, and get other people's insights. Um, but as I'm doing this, two immediate takeaways come to mind. Um, the first one is that, you know, and I, I look, I, I don't know of the, and maybe you can answer this, I don't know the level of what the field program looked like in places like Rees and Benelong and Robertson, but I can only assume that there was definitely direct voter contact going yeah, on. Yeah, heavy amounts. And 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 in and in Gilmore as well, I should add, which we'll come back to a bit later on. But you know, heavy heavy amounts of um of uh door knocking, phone calling, direct direct voter contact, well and truly. So if you are having conversations with undecided or persuadable voters on their doorstep or on their telephone over an extended period of time and actually having um, uh, values-based persuasion conversations that go to the root of their concerns about their community, then you are in a better position to win the hearts and minds and get their first preference, not their what they're going to do later down the ballot paper, but their first preference. Yeah. And so we, 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 we've seen that in places like Reed Benelong and Robertson and the state, the, the seats I've mentioned down in Victoria. If you don't do that and you're just relying on a national media campaign yeah. or paid advertising on TV, then maybe you throw out a couple of Facebook ads here and there. But if you do that, but if you're not actually speaking to people and also the research backs that up, which I, oh, someone gave me shit on Twitter the other day because they asked me what was the research. So I'm not freaking telling you. Right? <laughs> our opponents what our research tells us but believe me okay it moves votes yep. that's all you need to know right um but if you're not having those conversations then voters will consider something else and i think that what we saw from all of the polling lead up leading up to election day because was that there was the, the primary vote for labor and the primary vote for the liberal party were both low 
for the Liberal Party, substantially lower in the polls. Mm. And the others, and by that I mean all non-Labor or non-coalition parties, were uncharacteristically high and it didn't drop once pre-poll happened. I I was saying on the podcast, we're going to see these numbers fall because what happens is people start to make up their minds and they go, right, I'll go vote. And when they do get researched or surveyed, they give the answer that they, you know, who they voted for. It never really fell. And then on election day, basically everyone, not everyone, a lot of voters went, I'm going one green or one nation or, or Palmer or some independent. And then I'll make sure that Labor is ahead of the Tories on my on my ballot paper. And so we saw swings against us on our primary, but it swings to us on our 2PP. And why they did that, that's the answer. I, I don't know yeah. the question. And I'm wondering, to your second point, if the Albanese Labor government is an excellent government over the next three years and is seen to be, and I think that the secret source of any, what we've seen from all of our state governments is that they get shit done yep. and voters go, oh, they're not getting in my grill but I can, I'm looking around and I'm seeing stuff getting done in my community. I'm pretty happy about that. Yeah. So I'm happy with them. You know what? I'm going to vote one Labor. And then I think that the next election, if they do that, then we'll start to see all of those voters that gave us a second or third or fourth pri- uh, preference over the Liberals, but, you know, they'll come back to us. Yeah. Would be my th- Is my theory of change anyway that I'm coming up with at the moment. I don't want to get your thoughts on that. Mm. So one way that I've been thinking about the um... – the Teal seats and and Fowler, to be honest, we should put that on the table, uh, is one model I've got in my head of thinking about those is they were effectively um, large-scale community pre-selections where people in those communities looked at the offering that they had and weren't happy with what um, the major party had offered them. And so they found another way. And so like the through line of what uh, of what happened in, in those um uh, four seats in New South Wales, but also um, to your point about uh, direct voter contact and what is um, it's not saying it was it, it's it's not necessarily all about the exact policy offering, but a a structure and substance of of person as well. And you're saying that you know, I think sometimes we make the mistake in in um, elections and analysis to. Um, uh, remove the concept of a community from the individual candidate, um, whereas candidates who are of and from and in their own communities, they don't think about it in terms of, you know, I'm going to direct voter contact with my community to see what they want. It's, well, I know what they want because, you know, um, I'm in the front bar of the Ryans. I'm down at the RSL. I'm, um, you know, my kids go to school here, whatever, 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 you know, whatever touch points you've got. Yep. And people can suss that out. And instinctively then a good MP will be representative of and reflective of and in, in touch and in tune with their electorates. And I think what we saw happen, you know, particularly in those three three teal seats, incumbents who the community said, well, no, you don't actually reflect us and represent us and because of all the wonderful um you know advance um advances in um uh, um social media and um community connectivity and probably uh you know some shared um some shared experiences through covert lockdowns as well people have found ways to organize in ways that um and and this is your your domain not mine but 20 years ago it would have been quite hard to think of um, the sheer scale of the independent campaigns um, being able to self-organise um, so rapidly, uh, but I think that's you know some big advancements in um, in in digital communication and and connectivity there as well. So yeah, part of me is, and that's where I think that's the that's the big lesson for all of us. You know, Simon Birmingham said something really um, really clever on the Sunday morning um, insiders after the the day after the election. And he said, um, and I don't often quote liberals are being smart, but I'll, I'll credit this. Um, he said in 2019, um, the Liberal Party had a mask and a message. And the mask uh, or the masking effect was uh, the fact that people were voting against um, uh, the Labor policy offering, um, uh, particularly on, on different taxation changes. 
but the message for the Liberal Party was sitting in the seat of Warringah. And they convinced themselves that they lost Warringah because of the unpopularity of Tony Abbott. Uh, but Birmingham's view was that they had missed the actual message of the 2019 election, you know, the signal and the noise. They missed the they missed the signal. And where I think for 2022, I think there is a bit of, there's a giant masking effect. We can't argue there's a giant masking effect of uh, people disliking Scott Morrison and the government that he was running and the way that it, which he was running it and and all the issues and all the policies that he was out of touch on. But I wonder whether there's a message sitting in Fowler for us as well and also sitting in those teal seats of if you don't um, uh, reflect and be responsive to the communities which you're seeking to represent or do represent, um, they work you out. Mm. And it happens much, much quicker and much, much more effectively now uh, than, than sort of ever before. And so I think that's the big takeaway message for me is um, – you know the masking effect. We can't be um, uh, can't be um, we, we can't miss. Which is you know you can't run a government as badly as Scott Morrison and get away with it. <laughs> um, but also the the message sitting in you've got to um, uh, you've got to get candidate selection right, and you've got to represent that in the sort of people who seek to represent their communities, and they need to be of their communities. In uh, organising, we when we talk about um, developing a leadership structure of uh, people from within the constituency and by leader I don't mean um, when we think of leader we probably think of a politician or a mayor or something I'm not talking about that I'm talking about sort of voluntary leadership mm. um, when developing that leadership structure it has to be from the constituency and what we want to avoid and it sometimes happens is a thing called leadership island mm. where you get those leaders and you bring them together and they start working as a team which is great but then they remove themselves from that constituency through um no longer being in dialogue with them on a regular basis and creating communication flows um, through um, finding new leadership and enabling them. I mean, organising is about enabling others to achieve shared purpose. So that leadership is on, it's on them to, it's their responsibility to enable others. Mm. And we see, to your point, we see that a lot in politics is that when they get elected, they create without probably even realising that they're doing it, they create their own leadership island and they just almost accidentally um, uh, excommunicate themselves from their constituency. Yeah. Clearly the Liberals have done that in their heartland and they've just taken it for granted thinking, oh, you know, to quote Donald Trump, I can go out and, you know, shoot X amount of people yeah. and still, you know, um, they kind of did that without the, you know, mm. um, without picking up a um, AR-15, um, metaphorically speaking, of course. Um, and, yeah, you're right. I think there's a lesson for Labor as well in that. Um, and if I was a safe Labor MP, state or federal, I would be starting to reconsider what am I doing to engage with my constituency and not in a tokenistic bullshit like tick in a box engagement. I mean, do I know what are do I know what the challenges and, and problems that my community face? Yeah. Have I worked out how I can work with them to solve those problems? How can I enable other leadership within my community? Um, and then get organised, basically. And I, I know this is a you know this is a blatantly biased organising podcast. So I always think the answer to everything is always organising, but it helps, right? And we're not seeing that. And to my point to the start of this conversation was in Benelong and Reed and Robertson. Even though it's mobilising, it probably isn't organising in the true sense of the word. At least there were people going out there and having a conversation with voters and saying, "Hey, um, these are the challenges in your life. I think the answer will be for you anyway in three or four weeks' time is to vote for the Labor candidate." Yeah. Um, if you're not doing that everywhere, then we're going to get those kind of swings against us on our primary vote. We're just lucky they came back to us on the 2PP. Yeah. Before we talk about Benelong, sorry, Reid, no, sorry, before we talk about Fowler, yeah. give me your thoughts on uh, Gilmore. So let's wrap up the positives from the campaign. Yeah. Um, uh, Gilmore, which is, uh, let me just pull it up because it's uh, updating fairly rapidly. Um, uh at Gilmore, we are currently uh, we are currently ahead uh, by three hundred and seventy three votes in Gilmore, uh, which is tremendous. And um, uh, we spoke about it on the on election night uh, itself, but it was remiss of me not to talk about it in more detail um, or some of the more contextual factors on our on our pre pre election podcast. Um, Twenty nineteen, um, you know, talk about you know, the message sitting in there, um, the Liberal Party pre-selection um, uh, 
mess of Gilmore in 2019, which you would think would have been a clarion call to get your pre-selection house in order. Instead, they just sort of exported that model across the entire state with all of their pre-selections. But anyway, um, so in 2019, um, uh, there was the um, uh, endorsed Liberal candidate who had been imposed upon um, who had been imposed upon the branch in Warren Mundine. There was a national party candidate in a former um, a former state minister of high, high profile, Katrina Hodgkinson, running for the nationals. There was a ex Liberal Party member, um, uh, Grant Schultz, running as a independent, um, uh, overtly on the platform of being a disaffected ex um, Liberal Party member who didn't get pre-selection effectively, um, all running. And then, so that does sort of ate away at the, at the um, Liberal primary and through heavy preference leakage and, and um, swings and roundabouts, um, we, we sort of shot up through there. Um, so when we came to face 2019, uh, sorry, 22, um, the, um, uh, the Andrew Constance effect, I think people, um, uh, mistook that for being, oh, they've got a high-profile celebrity candidate um, uh, who, um, you know, was the state transport minister uh, and whose prior electorate um, somewhat overlapped the seat of Gilmore. Um, oh, they'll do very well because of him. Well, the the real story, and this is why it's sort of remarkable, the the, the effort that we've that we've done there to um, to be you know narrowly ahead and looks like we're going to continue to be ahead um, is really because there was a mass consolidation of the um, of the non labor vote back around a single candidate. You didn't have that sort of um, three way split um, dividing the um, uh, dividing the vote this time. You had all what should, should have been in normal circumstances. Um, you would have thought a a snapback or a reversion back to a liberal held seat because you had those three consolidating back, so you're not worried about preference leakage anymore because that primary is all coming back in. Um, not to be, um, not to be. So um, there, there was a there was also a um, uh, an independent running um, this time around um, who who picked up. Um, a bit of that liberal chaos vote from from last time, but effectively you saw um, the liberal primary um, came uh, came back, but they didn't get all of it back mm. over the course of um, over the course of those three years, uh, and that's how you know that's how Fiona's been able to pull off a remarkable remarkable victory and and get us to um, seventy seven. It's actually it's actually an interesting seat that folks should have a take a look at. You're right, actually, because the uh, from the 2019 campaign, the the national with no candidate running from the national party, there's a collapse of you know 12 that w- that was worth 12 and a half percent in a primary. Uh, the libs have gone to 12.8. There's obviously a, there was a, like a, a others in the 2019 campaign was worth 8.8 percent, and then that's kind of been divvied up now between an independent and a one nation candidate. They're both respectively on a sort of 4.2, 4.0. Um, and uh, there's been a slight swing to the Greens of 0.3% and the slight swing against Labor on a primary 0.2. Mm. Um, and whatever's happened in the sort of the distribution of those all of those non-Labor uh, independent One Nation uh, candidates, it's just done enough to put Fiona over the top, which is um, which is a remarkable effort. Yeah, so uh, and without having seen... Um, uh, some of those, uh, uh, the One Nation UAP or the Independent had a vote cards or the Liberal Dem had a vote cards. I think it's all of their primaries are all um, looking at now. They're all you know sub four percent, so they've just have sort of splintered away, and we've sort of soaked up enough in enough uh, places. I suspect some of them um, uh, didn't have preferences listed and clearly weren't weren't followed if they if they did and obviously the green vote has just increased enough there and you would expect that we would have picked up a good a good bit of flow 
um, out of that. But it's sort of a remarkable story that one of um, um, sort of defying um, defying the odds of both you know um, mathematics and then on top of it um, uh, a what was seen to be a high pro- a high profile um, candidate. And uh, last time I was on, I um, I went through the litany of failures of him as a state transport minister. So people can go back and listen to that one again. <laughs> Uh, any other pluses for Labor out of the uh, out of the result before we move to some of the deltas? Uh, no, look, we, we, we've covered the we covered the high ground. Um, uh, obviously, yeah, I think there was some um, there was some consternation or concern about the seat of Parramatta um, going in. Um, that, that ended up on again on, on a two PP basis. Ended up on um, uh, on a, an, an increase on two PP and um, uh, having. Um, having seen the campaign that he ran with the time available and also what he's been doing since becoming uh, the member for Parramatta, um, you know, Andrew Charlton is um, uh, building very strong community linkages. And I think some of the things we've been talking about around um, um, around community organising and engagement is, you know, um, from the bits and pieces that I'm seeing, he's, he's, he's starting the work and he knows he's got some big work ahead of him. But that was one that we were um, obviously concerned about. The... Um, um, a couple of the other um, amazing wins and is um, uh, and things to think about. I've been watching the um, the you know the AEC declaration process, and some of them just absolutely make me smile. Of the combination of seats that are being declared together, um, like Ed Monero got to like we haven't spoken about Ed Monero, <laughs> and um, that used to be you know how many you know column pages were dedicated to hand wringing about in Monero. Um, I think Macquarie, and, and forgive me, I get this wrong. I think the seat of Macquarie got declared on the same day as the seat of Cook, uh, which, you know, Macquarie was, I think the margin was 0.9%. It was one of the most marginal uh, in the state, if not the most marginal Labor uh, Labor seat, maybe up there with Gilmore. They probably would have been very, very similar. It, it, we haven't spoken about it at all because the result was so, was so strong and definitive there. So um, the, some of our holds um, of some some slim 2019 results um, can't be, you know, passed by either. Let's talk about uh, Fowler mm. um, and I'll do my best David Feeney impersonation. Um, I, know who, I know who Dai Lee is this time. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. That was one of the weird things about that night was, you know, we're not – prepped with as much information uh, as, say, some of the uh, the guys on the main networks are. Um, but we were <laughs> scratching around <laughs> trying to find some stuff about some seats that we just I did not think was going to be a talking point. And Fowler obviously was one of them. Um, my question to you about Fowler is the narrative is that, you know, in, you know, and I think there's strong merit in it that, you know, if you treat an electorate or a community with disrespect in the way that the use plant a candidate on top of them and say right now go vote for them that you're going to get stuck or it's going to come unstuck however we've done this before and we did it in this election as well yeah and there are examples of it in new south wales and there are examples of it in victoria mm. yet christina come unstuck mm. what's the difference do you think uh i i honestly don't think that the well i'll say what i say what i don't think that i think the difference is not um, the individual candidate that we selected, and uh, Christina Kennelly is a former premier of our state. Um, uh, has um, was a deputy deputy leader in the Senate. Has made a uh, outstandingly positive uh, labour contribution, and that shouldn't be be missed on the way through through this. And none of this is a reflection on her. I don't think. I think there is a bit of um, confluence and circumstance of the things that we're talking about. Um, found its way to the forefront in Fowler. But to be honest, it could have happened elsewhere. So that's why I'm saying it's not about... Uh, I've seen some of the commentary and I think it's um, it's unfair. I think that some of the commentary has focused more on um, the individual than on the the, the the tides around. And frankly, had this happened in in other parts of um, the state or in, or in Victoria, it could have happened there as well. I think... Um, uh, what was saying about you know the teal seats and others around if the community um, forms a view that it doesn't like the option being presented to it and it's organised enough, it can find a way um, and it find a way around around that and that's what 
occurred in Fowler. Uh, I think also, um, uh, you know, the unique structural position of Fowler um, as compared to, um, you know, other communities, including, you know, Parramatta, for example. Um, uh, Fowler has a more um, uh, single homogenous, um, uh, non-white uh, population, uh, whereas seats of, um, uh, you know, other seats um, which are equally, you know, what we would call, um, you know, multicultural um, have more combinations of different um, cultural groupings sitting within them, whereas um, uh, Fowler obviously has a very strong um, uh, Vietnamese population. Um, and I think, um, you know, that community then having having an option presented to it of a, um, a high-profile independent with a previous record of that in that community uh, and being of and representative of that community um, was able to organise in very quick and short order. Um, and, you know, we can't deny sitting on top of that as well was a very... Um, public, noisy uh, pre-selection process, um, uh, which also had um, uh, interaction with that um, cultural grouping um, Mm. as well. So I do think that, um, uh, like I said, there is definitely a message for Labor sitting in that. I I, um, it pains to say that it is not not reflective of um, uh, Christina Keneally as a um, individual or a candidate or as a phenomenal Labor woman who's made a huge contribution to the show and I'm sure we'll find other ways to make contributions to uh, to the state and to the nation um, but I but I do think it's representative of what happens if um, uh, we, we, we just get the play wrong Looking to the future uh, where does um what does the New South Wales state Labor take from this result? We got a, a state poll in March next uh, next year. Yeah, uh, I, I think I think there's a um, there's a few things all sort of rolling along um, going into the um, state election. Um, there's you know you you can go through you can run through the exercise of overlaying um, overlaying federal results onto state seats and sort of trying to cast some sort of divine wisdom from that, you know, on that basis. Um, uh, I think I said in the night in um, Epping, which is uh, Perite's seat, there were massive swings against. Do I think that Perite is going to lose his seat at the state election? Probably not. Um, you know, so so I think we can, um, you know, I, I, I honestly didn't see a lot of overlap between the two campaigns. Um, uh, I think... Um, uh, you know the, the lessons for state labour uh, in New South Wales going into the next election is all the things we've been talking about: good community organising, good community engagement, picking the right issues, uh, and presenting good, competent leadership. Um, I think we've got that in spades with Chris Minns. Um, I think he's picking the right issue on, uh, particularly on you know cost of living, on um, on tolls and fines, um, and the like. Uh, and as we get closer, we'll roll out um, some more policy offerings there as well. We're seeing um, quite a degree of um, industrial action at the moment in New South Wales, particularly from um, I think there's a uh, I think the public servants are out today, the public um, public sector unions out today. Um, uh, but we're seeing that in um, uh, in our railway workers, in uh, nurses and paramedics, in in teachers. Um, and that is as um, as much a uh, an articulation of um, frustration and the pain that people are going through on cost of living at the moment. And uh, if the state government is um, you know continues to be out of touch on those issues, um, then uh, then that will will be fertile ground for state labour. Uh, and then on top of that, I think um, uh, some of the state governments, effectively like the state government's um, record uh, in infrastructure is staying to come undone through different crunches and they're pushing off projects that were previously slated and sort of abandoning different projects and they're losing some of the credible capital that they had um, on those issues. And then um, uh, I'm 
I'm, I'm resisting the urge to get hook, to hook into um, the transport portfolio again, but um, but effectively, there's a whole range range of ways that on on basic service delivery um, in the transport portfolio as well that the state government is letting is letting the people in New South Wales down in an area which, you know, frankly, um, you know, in a playbook stolen from us in in running a good centrist government under um, you know obviously that started um, started with Bob Carr. Um, I think their their credibility on those issues is coming to a is coming to a close, um, but it is a really tricky, and we'll have to pull through it another time. But it is a really tricky election um, for Labor. The combination and the location and the sort of seats that we need to um, pick up and the places we need to pick up um, are, are, are non homogenous. They're all over the they're all over the state. Um, but then again, we picked up the seat of Bega. Uh, for the first time in New South Wales history at a by-election um, uh, recently. But we did it because we chose a good local community candidate in Dr Michael Holland. Uh, so uh, there is um, uh, there is a pathway there for us, but I don't see a lot of overlap between um, between the two the two elections. What I see is sort of a uh, back to that, you know, form and structure and style. Uh, and I think that um, uh, Chris Minns and the team are on the right path there. If you're looking at the electoral map federally for the 2025 election in New South Wales, yeah. um, is your campaign strategy simply to hold what we've got? So there's 26 seats, or have you have we gleaned anything from the 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 shakeup of the electorate from this election that suggests that there are new areas where Labor can um, focus its resources to, if not jag uh, a seat in the 2025 election, but you can start to see that there is a change in attitudes or the demographics. I hate using that term demographics, but like where can you, where are they, where is there fertile ground in New South Wales for Labor to make new inroads into picking up new seats? Uh, the, um, the, the one that comes to mind is I'd love to see us, uh, it's actually a, a, a win back, but from so long ago now that it maybe it feels like new ground. I, I'd love for us. Uh, I'd love to see us uh, get back the seat of banks. Um, uh, we put in a really strong, uh, strong effort um, this time, but the um, the circumstances just just didn't didn't cut our way um, uh, enough. Um, uh, so so banks would be one you'd like to see. Um, I think for like majority on the on the labour side, we are at a we, you know we're at a very very healthy position, uh, to be honest. Um, the on the other side of the ledger, the pathway for the Liberals is um, atrocious, uh, and um, uh, you know a seat that didn't get remarked upon, but was nearly an upset on the night. The seat of Bradfield, which is um, the St Ives uh, part of the world, and and surrounds. Um, that two BP is now, unless it's been updated, but that two BP is now against an independent um, who got close. I think in the end it, it was a you know um, the Liberals retained it with Paul Fletcher, um, but uh, the independent there um, gave it a run for their money, um, and uh, I don't think um, I don't think they had particularly deep pockets or or, or big backing. Uh, in that particular seat, I think it was just another demonstration of um, uh, once um, Blue Ribbon Liberal Party seats not feeling particularly well represented by the um, by the offering in front of them. Um, so I can see, with the exception of of banks and um, uh, I'm trying to think around uh, around the map, it it kind of feels like we're at a bit of a you know, um, we're at a high watermark, or at least at a at a, at a healthy watermark in um, in the state of New South Wales. Um, uh, the seat of North Sydney is really interesting. Um, uh, in if um, uh, and again, forgive me if I get this wrong, but for memory, the Greens didn't preference us second; they preference the Independent second in. North Sydney, um, which had that flipped around the other way, that was a genuine three horse race that could have could have gone uh, could have gone our way. Now that they've got a um, a teal independent, I think that would be a um, an unlikely 
um, gain uh, for us there. But again, um, you know, if this election has taught us anything, um, communities will judge you on on the basis of your performance over the past three years. So if um, uh, various um, independent members don't um, don't perform, and as to your point, if the Labor government um, is performing, performing well, delivering good services, rolling out good infrastructure, being competent, doing the job that it's meant to do. Um, you know, there could be uh, fertile ground in parts of the state that we wouldn't otherwise uh, have thought possible by virtue of, um, you know, they've abandoned the Liberal Party and they're looking for someone to, to, do, to do a good job. Um, they'll be judging these three years pretty pretty carefully, I would have thought. And uh, we'll um, obviously watch closely as that uh, that story unfolds over the course of the the, uh, the term of the Albanese Labor government, which is a wonderful sentence to, to say. Elliot, once again, thank you very much for your time and your insights into uh, the campaign, particularly in your home state of New South Wales. We appreciate you coming back on the show. And uh, I dare say that we'll have you back on as we get closer and closer to the New South Wales state campaign in March next year. Thanks very much for coming on. Really looking forward to it. And thanks again for having me. Thanks for listening to Socially Democratic. Did you like the podcast? Hit the follow or subscribe button and be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. And to get all the latest on Socially Democratic, follow Dunstreet on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And we'll see you next Friday.